0: After David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him with his sin. We're all probably very familiar with that famous statement that Nathan gave him when he, was, when he said, you are that man, right? You are that man. A, a statement that caused David, David to repent and turn back to God and ask God to forgive him. But there's another statement that Nathan makes that may not be as familiar to us, but it is massively important for the rest of our look in this series legacy the life of Absalom. 2 Samuel 12:10, Nathan also says this: Now the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have sinned and because you have done this terrible thing, sinning against Bathsheba and murdering your husband, the sword shall never depart from your house. Violence would always be a continual part of this family's story. We saw last week that his oldest son, Amnon, heir to the throne, rapes his daughter, Tamar. That is the beginning of this violence that's going to plague this family, but it's going to continue and it's going to exponentially grow as we move forward. And this week we're going to see it grow as Absalom responds to the rape of his sister. So remember, Absalom and Tamar are full blood brother and sister. Amnon is half brother to Absalom and Tamar. They had different mothers, same father, David. And uh, we're going to read this in parts because I want to read a section and then kind of break that section down. So we'll kind of just do it in parts here. I want to read starting in verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 13. And here's what it says. And her brother Absalom said to her, this is after the rape, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When the king, David, heard of all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon. Because he had violated his sister, Tamar. So after the rape, Tamar is seen by her full blood brother, Absalom, and he questions her as to what happened. Right. It says here uh, just the simple statement has Amnon, your brother, been with you. You know, that's not all that was said. Right. I mean, you know, there was a conversation that went on where he receives the details as to what actually went down. He questions her, he gets the information, and he takes her into his house. Now, with the culture at the time, a single woman who was no longer virgin, regardless of how that happened, was considered damaged goods. And men would not want to take her as his wife. And so when Absalom takes her in, he knows he's taking her in because there is no one that's going to provide and protect her at this point. And it says in verse 20, Tamar lived a desolate woman. There's another reason for this. We'll we'll talk about it in a minute. So while we respect Absalom for taking in his sister and providing for her and looking after her, notice what else it says in verse 20 he tells her to do. Keep quiet. You've been raped by your half-brother, Our dad is the king, but you keep quiet. Hold your peace. Don't say anything about this. When King David hears about the rape, what does it say he does? It says he gets angry, but does nothing. He's angry about it. He's mad about it. He hates that it has happened, but he does nothing. So Tamar is told, don't say anything about what has happened, because after all, it's your brother, the future king of Israel. And the man who should have brought justice, King David, does nothing. Now, we read this, and we can be shocked by it. A woman is raped. There is this plot to sexually assault a woman. Two men come together to set up this plot. She is raped. Her brother says, don't say anything about it. You can come into my house. I'll protect you and I'll provide for you, but don't say anything about it. David hears about it, and David gets angry. He's furious that it it has happened, but he does nothing about it. And it's easy for us to hear that, and immediately there's this visceral reaction. How dare they not do something about this? How dare justice not take place? But church, the devil uses the same playbook with every generation. Today, the devil will use the same playbook when sexual assaults or abuse happens. Often the victims, for a variety of reasons, are told to stay quiet about it. Don't say anything. The sexual assault or abuse could be swept under the rug without justice being done. This should not be, church. This should not be. Absalom should have gone straight to his father and demanded that David look into what happened and bring retribution. If David would do nothing about it, then Absalom should have gone to the elders of Israel and say that the king has been told nothing has happened, you are the elders of Israel, I'm asking you on on behalf of justice for my sister and retribution that you speak with the king and you make a judgment as to what needs to happen. If the elders would have done nothing, then he should have gone to Amnon himself Confronted him personally, calling him to repent and give restitution to Tamar. David should have arrested Amnon. And given the circumstances of this situation, do you know what the penalty for this situation should have been? Death. Amnon should have been put to death for raping his half-sister. Yet these two men... Tell her to keep quiet and do nothing. So let me just say this. If you are abused or you are assaulted, do not be quiet about it. Go to the authorities. Go to the people that are supposed to have the authority over criminal situations. It is a crime and it is illegal. Do not remain quiet about it. And if someone comes to you and reveals abuse that somebody has abused them or somebody has sexually assaulted them or raped them, you encourage them to not be quiet about it. The reason why, remember the Me Too movement that happened a few years ago? The reason why the Me Too movement happened is because finally some some women decided we're not going to just be quiet about this. And do you know what sprung off the Me Too movement? Church too. Because the amount of sexual assault that would be happening in churches, sometimes by authority figures in churches, was being kept quiet Swept under the rug and not being reported to the authorities. And so we had hurting victims sitting in church with the people who have abused them, who have raped them, who have sexually assaulted them, and nothing was said and done about it. This should not be. That is not justice and that is not proper. Take it to the authorities. We want to be a church who handles situations like this properly. See, here's the thing. We've talked about it in a staff meeting before. If you come to us and you reveal to us that you've been abused or sexually assaulted or, or raped or whatever it is, we don't have the ability to do a proper investigation on that. You can't come to me and tell me that's what's gone on and, and I'll say, I'll get to the bottom of it for you. I am not qualified to do something like that. Brother James is not qualified to do something like that. What has happened in churches is that people have come and revealed what has happened and the pastors have just said or the authority figures have just said or somebody else in the church has just said we'll get to the bottom of it. We'll find out. No, that is not our job. We can't do that. We put that in the hands of people who know what they're doing, who can investigate, who can find out what has happened and can bring justice. It's not our job as pastors To bring that justice. Do not be silent about abuse. I know that it is one of the most difficult things that anyone can do. Is to come forward when they've been abused. But I want you to know that as a church we will support those who come out and say they've been abused. We do not want you to suffer in silence. What happened with the Me Me Too movement and the Church Too movement is when people began to speak out, you know what it did? It empowered others who had been abused to speak out. And finally, serial abusers were put in prison. Serial abusers were dealt with. And, and, and when we don't speak out, what we do is we enable, other, we enable the abuser to continue to abuse other people. And other people are being abused. And it does not take a Google search very long. I mean, there, almost weekly, there is an evangelical minister who gets arrested for sexual assault. Almost weekly. In some respects, we're thankful that that's happening. Because people are being caught. And then we're disgusted that that's happening. Men, women of Calvary Hill, do not remain silent if you've been abused or if you've been assaulted. This is not just a woman issue. This is a man and a woman issue. I have asked myself why David and Absalom were told told her to be quiet. Why they didn't do what they should have done about it. Here's what I think ultimately it is about. Selfishness. I think the reason why Absalom doesn't do what he should do and why David doesn't do what he should do is because they were selfish. David was selfish because he didn't want to lose his firstborn son. This is the next king of Israel. If you're just following a line of succession, this is who's supposed to be next. And David doesn't want to lose his firstborn son. Absalom doesn't do anything about it because Absalom is going to bring self-serving revenge. Let me say what Absalom's about to do again. Bring self-serving revenge. He is not interested in justice. He is not interested in justice. He is interested in self-serving vengeance. Verse twenty-three through twenty-nine. A. Let's read that next. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited. All the king's sons and Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and the servants go with your servant." But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go lest we be burdensome to you. And he pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. So I'm not going to go, but you got your blessing for the party. Right, You got your blessing for this feast, but I'm not going to go. Then Absalom said, if not, then please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, I have, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Verse 23 tells us how many years it's been. How many years is between verse 22 and 23? Two years. So we have a two-year gap between verses. Between verse 22 and 23 is two years. I would argue... That this self serving revenge and vengeance of Absalom has been, is being planned for two years. I think he is plotting his revenge and his vengeance this entire time. This is a murder plot. Pure and simple, this is a murder plot. His plan is to throw a feast, to throw a party that is centered around the annual shearing of the sheep. And so, in verse 24 and 25, he goes to his father and he says, My father, king, would you please come with all of your servants to this feast? But David refuses on the basis that he would be a burden. Now, we have to stop and ask ourselves, in what way would David be a burden to come to the feast? I think it's, this is going to be... If I bring my entire royal entourage, this is going to become a giant, huge production. It's going to cost too much money. It's going to to make things, it's going to bog down everything. I would be a burden if I came to this feast. It wouldn't accomplish what you want it to accomplish. Because think about the royal entourage that would have to come. This is not a good idea for me to come. Then... I think Absalom is counting on that response. I think Absalom knows his dad's not gonna come. I think he knows, this is gonna be way too, my dad's not coming with the giant royal entourage to this thing. I think he's counting on this response from David because immediately who does he bring up as soon as David says no? What about Amnon? will not you let Amnon come? Now David kinda knows something's up, doesn't he? Because he says, why why do you want Amnon to be there? What's the reason you want Amnon to be there? So so I think Absalom plans, his whole goal is to get Amnon to this feast. So he knows, my dad's not going to come, but what I can do is I can ask for Amnon to be my dad's surrogate, right? I could ask him, he's the next in line to be king, right? He's the next guy. I can get him there. And David at first is like, well, why do you kind of push his back? He smells a rat a little bit. And he's like, I don't know if this is a good idea, but why do you want him there? And it says that Absalom keeps pushing, keeps pushing, keeps pushing. And finally David David gives in and says, that's fine. You can go take Amnon and, and have your party. In fact, all my sons can come to the party. And then in verse 28, Absalom reveals his plan. The plan is, get Amnon drunk, and when he's stumbling around in this party, and he's not aware of what's going on, he's not alert of anything, he's just completely out of it, I'm going to give the word, and then servants, as soon as I give the word, you strike him down and kill him. And you do it in front of everybody. Now I want you to see something very interesting that jumped out at me about this command to his servants. Do you notice the phrase that Absalom uses in verse 28? It says, strike Amnon and then you shall kill him. And then he says this, do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. as soon as i read that bells and whistles kind of went off in my head ring ding ding it just kind of went off in my head and i'm like wait a minute i've heard that before i've heard that language before this is exactly almost word for word in the hebrew what god tells joshua do not be afraid be strong and courageous, for I have commanded you. This is almost word for word the language of Yahweh to his people when he gives commands. When Joshua is about to lead Israel into the promised land and take the promised land, he, God uses these words. In other words, this is my command to you. This is what the Lord wants. Now Absalom takes that same language, usurps it, and says to his servants, I have commanded you. I think what he's doing here is he's saying, we're doing God's work. He's telling his servants, we're doing God's work. This is what God wants. So be strong and courageous and be valiant. I have commanded you. Don't fear. Absalom usurping the authority of Yahweh, taking vengeance into his own hand. And I want you to see that Absalom's plot here is a cruel parallel to the plot of Amnon. Okay? Both, we come up with a fake story. Remember Amnon's fake story? Pretend like I'm sick. Ask David to send Tamar to me, to take care of me. Brother James talked about men being big babies. Uh, when they're sick and then he suddenly attacks her now notice what Absalom's going to do creates a fake false narrative we're going to have a feast we're going to have a party David sends the victim and then there is this sudden immediate attack This is a cruel parallel, this plot that Absalom is making up. And then we read in verse 29 that all of Absalom's servants go right along with it. They don't rebel against him. They don't say this is wicked. They don't don't confront him and say, no, we can't do this. They simply go along with the plot. Let me say something about authority real quick. Yes, we are to submit to authority as long as that authority does not tell us or call on us to do something that is against the will of God. And as soon as authority tells us to do something that is against the will of God, we speak out against him. We say, no, this is not what we do as children of God. And they follow this wicked plan, and Amnon is now dead. Look at what happens in verses 29 through 39. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all of the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all of the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and he tore his garments and he lay on the earth. And all the servants who were standing tore their garments But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant has said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept, and the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmay, the son of Hemahud king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now we got chaos. I mean, just reading that's chaotic, is it not? Chaos now breaks out. Everyone is, is fleeing. Everyone's running. Absalom's brothers flee. They probably think they're next. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're in a situation like that and you've been invited to a feast and, and the first thing that happens at the feast is the firstborn son gets struck down, you may very well be thinking, I'm next. So they jump on their mules and they're gone. I think they think they're next because they don't go home. They go to David, the place they know they'll be safe. Right? So they all jump on their mules like, we're going to dad's. Dad's got us. I'm not going home because he may hunt us down there. We're going to dad's where we're safe, where the military is. That's where we're going to go. The peace of this nation is now torn apart. And back home, David receives a report that all of his sons have been killed. Verse 30. Now, I don't think the servant who tells them this is lying. I don't think that's his motivation. I think in the chaos, that's what he thinks went down. Here's how this may have played out. Amnon goes down. He's murdered. This servant sees it's happening. This servant is out of there in a heartbeat, jumps on his horse or mule or something, and is gone to David to tell David what went down. And in his mind, he's thinking, Absalom's killing all of his brothers. So when he gets to David, he tells David, listen, I was there. Amnon was killed. All your sons are now going to be killed by Absalom. I, I think this is probably what he thinks was the plot or the plan all along was to kill all of them. And David is obviously distraught. The fulfillment of God's judgment was more than he ever thought it was going to be. He thought all his sons were dead. And so he tears his clothes and he throws himself on the earth and all of his servants tear their clothes. And then someone jumps back into the story. This dude, Jonadab. Now remember, Jonadab was the one who plotted with Amnon... He was a part of the plot to rape Tamar. He's the one who told Amnon, you, you, you're, you want your sister, don't you? Here's how, here's how it needs to go down. Pretend like you're sick. This, that was all his plan. And this guy who planned the rape of David's daughter is now in David's house working with him. I just have to ask the question, what is this guy even doing around? Why is this guy even around? But here he is. And he seems to have some vital information for the king. Verse 32, he tells David, it's not all your sons who were dead. Just Amnon." Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, how does he know that? He wasn't at the feast. How does he know only Amnon is dead? There's only three possibilities that I came up with. One, he was at the feast and he just got back really, really fast. I don't think that's the case. Two, he's just so clever that he just was guesstimating how this went down. And he guessed right. Or three, he was in on this plot too. If I were to guess, he was in on this plot too. So look how weasley this dude is. He he goes to, he plans the rape of Amnon. And then when it's time to, to get revenge on Amnon, he plans the murder of Amnon with Absalom. He's just going around, whoever, whoever needs, you know, whoever needs me to help plan a plot or take somebody out, like I'm your guy. I think given his character, the last option is the most believable. I think he planned this with Absalom. Soon, verse 35 and 36, David's sons arrive. David realizes that Jonadab was right. Amnon is the only victim. And what of Absalom? First, he flees the feast. He's probably fleeing the feast because he thinks his brothers might kill him. Then we read, not only does he flee the feast, he actually flees to his fraternal grandfather. He goes to his mom's dad for protection. He's there for three years. By the way, I I said earlier that I was going to come back to the fact that why in the world... Would Tamar, who gets taken into the house of Absalom, be called a desolate woman? If she's she's with Absalom in Absalom's house, why is she desolate? Well, because this plot ruins any kind of protection and provision that Absalom can give to his sister. He now is running for his life. He'll be running for his life or in war with his dad for the rest of his life. Guess who he doesn't care about anymore? Tamar. That's why this is self-serving vengeance. He's not doing what's best for Tamar. He's doing what's best for himself. He's doing what he wants to do. And in doing so, he is simply multiplying the evil and hurting Tamar even more. And then at the end of verse 39, we have this said. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he, David, was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is confusing. In fact, the Hebrew is confusing and there are different translations and interpretations of this. It, it, it gets difficult to try to understand what is meant by this. From my study, here's what I probably think it means. I think it's best to understand it like this. David, I've reworded it. David held back from bringing justice to Absalom and instead comforted himself concerning his son who was dead. So I think what this is telling us is he knew he should have gone after Absalom and and, and brought justice. But instead, he just comforted himself for the death of his son and he never brought justice. If he wanted Absalom... He could have got Absalom. No question about it. He didn't go after Absalom. So now we've got the second time that David, who should have brought justice, who is the king of Israel, doesn't do so. And both were in regards to his son's actions. And because of this bloodshed, or because of it, the bloodshed was going to continue in this family And the judgment of God would remain. Now, I'm not done yet. I have one more point. But I want to do something a little bit different. I was searching for books, trying to get commentaries and get some books on Absalom and studying. And I ran across... By the way, no books are just written about Absalom. There's just not. But I came across a play... ...that was written by a man named Joseph Bell. It is a play called Absalom. And it is written in kind of a Shakespearean language... uh, ...about what would have gone down from the moment of the party... ...until the end of Absalom's life. And I have asked Shelby to come up here and read the part of Tamar... ...because I didn't want to go back and I didn't want to use a girl's voice on that part... ...and be like, oh brother. So... I have asked her to come up. I'm going to read the Absalom part. She's going to read the Tamar part. And here's the setup for this. The setup is, because we don't hear from Tamar again, you be quiet, we put you over here in my house, and then by the way, I'm just going to leave. We don't ever get to hear from her. What he does is he imagines a conversation between Absalom and Tamar After the murder of Amnon. So we want to just do a little playlet for you guys. Uh, This, I mean, don't judge me against Shelby, okay? She's going to do a much better job of this than me. She graduated from Booker T. Washington, performing arts and and play things place. Uh, All right, you Ready? Are you going to come up as, as we do it? Okay. we we practiced this, but, you know, we didn't have, like, stage, what's it called? Like, stage blocking and stuff? We didn't do any of that. My sister, sweetly loved, where is thy smile? No words for me? Art thou to silence sworn? Dost thou not see what I have done for thee? I pray thee, speak. Hast thou no love for me? Who art thou who would fain to speak of love? Thou knowest me. No other soul doth know me more. Our mother knew me less than you can boast.
1: I know thee not.
0: Wilt thou not even look upon my face?
1: I cannot bear to look at thee with hate.
0: Well, then look look on me with familiar gaze. Why draweth thee away? Art thou afeared? Thou hast no cause to dread what he shall do. Yea, nothing shall give thee cause to fear. I say, I, I, I see that I make thee tremble with my words. Why dost thou fear? Thou hast a brotherly love. I fear thee, Absalom. That cannot be. What right hast thou to fear? My bloody hands do only speak of thee. Thou seest thy protector, not thy foe. But stay, I see thine eyes are filled with tears. I beg thee, do not weep. Why shed tears?
1: Thou fool, I weep for thee. Thou shalt be lost. Thou was the first among my comforters, the object of my fond and gentle love, and dear to me above all other kin. But now thou hast renounced a brother's place and made me bow in fear of
0: what thou art. Why dost thou recoil against my embrace?
1: If thou had stayed thy hand, I would not flee. Thou shalt not hold me in thy bloody hands. Because of thee, I am bereft of love. I shall two brothers lose before the dawn.
0: Wherefore dost thou revile me for his death? I know thou hast no love for him. He is a wretch. Then why dost thou reproach me for this deed?
1: Because thou chose to spill thy brother's blood. He has
0: defiled thee.
1: By heaven, dost thou think that I forget? No mercy hath sufficed to cleanse my shame. No hand did stop the tears that I have wept, no voice hath soothed the aching of my soul. He took my joy, my robe of innocence, and marred his bed with pure and virgin blood, and thus I hated him for these many years.
0: Then wherefore am I chastised by thy lips?
1: Because I trust the vengeance of the Lord. No justice could be more severe than his.
0: I have no will to wait for heaven's hour. I like it not, it tarries out of reach. Dost thou not think that I might fulfill his will? Suppose thy hand by providence was led. Dost thou
1: not hear the folly in thy words? This deed was wicked murder, Absalom.
0: It was for thee and only thee, sweet child. For thee I have provoked our father's wrath. For thee I have adjured my innocence. Do
1: not profane thy tongue. Thou speakest lies. Thou acted for thyself and thee alone. Thou sought to glut thine own perverted wrath.
0: It is not so. Wherefore am I accused? Art thou unmoved? Wilt thou not hear my plea? Come, sister, tell me I am loved. My brother... I must go. Wilt thou, like my accusers, flee from me?
1: I shall not stay with thee to be thy judge. I pray thy heart will speak on my behalf.
0: If thou wouldst go, then go. I shall not plead. I see no mercy liveth in thy heart. I free thee from a sister's ancient bond. Thou shalt no more require a brotherly love. Henceforth, I shall no longer call thee kin, no burden thee with loyalty and love. Be gone. This is the fate of every righteous soul. He is by all forsaken and abused. And Absalom is left unto himself. It matters not. The bloody deed is done. His well-deserved death is my reward. And thence my sister's honor is restored. And seen. I wanted to do that because I wanted you to feel what that tension now between Absalom and Tamar exists. She knows, you didn't do this for me. You took upon yourself revenge, and it was for you, and it was murder, and it wasn't God's will. And now this relationship is severed. I want to end with Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. Turn there with me, Romans chapter 12. 19 and 20. I want to speak on the biblical understanding of vengeance given in the New Testament. Paul is writing in Romans 12 about the marks of true Christianity. And here's what he says in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Three things I want to say about this. Number 1, God takes vengeance on sins that have been committed. Points blank but nothing. God takes vengeance on sins that have committed been committed. It is God who punishes sin. It is a part of his holy and just nature. He will not let sin slide. You do know that, correct? God has never let a sin slide. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. Even if other people do, he doesn't keep quiet about it. Even though other people may, God avenges sins. Number two, since God avenges all sin, men and women are not to take justice into their own hands. When we do this, we're acting like Absalom. We're forgetting God. We're forgetting God. And we're multiplying evil on top of evil. When you seek vengeance, when you seek revenge, when you seek to to do it yourself, you are forgetting that God is going to do it and you are multiplying evil. Number three. Since God avenges all sin, and we as private individuals are forbidden to do so, the proper Christian response to evil is to do good. Now, I'm not talking about reporting illegal activity. We've already talked about that. But when somebody does something evil to you, the proper Christian response is not to get even. It is not to avenge, it is not to get revenge, it is not to bring retribution yourself. The proper Christian response is to do good. That's how we combat evil, church, by being a people who do good and leave the vengeance and the retribution to Almighty God, who we know will avenge. It is amazing to me that we live now in a country where everyone thinks it is their job to make things right. It is our job to do this. It's our job to do that. And we've got to stop this. And we've got to stop that. And then all the means that we, we, we exercise to try to stop things, we just simply add to the evil. We don't understand They're my enemy. And Jesus says, love them. You don't understand, they're persecuting me. Jesus says, pray for them. These aren't aren't options that we get. We don't get to go, yeah, but you don't understand. Jesus gave us a command. Love our enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Where do you think Paul got this idea from? Jesus. Jesus, the the proper Christian response to evil is to do good. That gets us real quiet real quick because our flesh does not want to hear that. Our flesh wants to get even immediately to buck up and say, whoa, 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 you're not going to talk to me like that. You're not going to do that to me. I'm not going to sit here and stand for that. I'm not going to let you say that. I'm not going to let you do that. Just a bow up in somebody's face. Even if you got to do it through social media. Even if you do it in the privacy of your home with only three or four people there. It's wrong. It goes against the command of our king And it puts us in the same spirit and the same attitude as Absalom. So don't think here for a second that we're far removed from being like Absalom. Your flesh is so much like Absalom and make your head spin, right? But thank God we are filled with a spirit that is holy, that produces love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and and self-control. How different the story of Absalom would have been if he would obeyed the law of God. If he would have had the spirit of Jesus. If he would have had the attitude of Paul. How different this story would have gone. Church, I just want to say this. How different our lives would go. If we'd obey Christ, if we'd obey his word, how ridiculous it'll be if we live with the spirit of absence.